So this past week, um, I started watching this show with Nigel called The Mandalorian. And for the Star Wars nerds out there, this is, this is a Star Wars show. And really, you know, enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. And for those of you who are, uh, you know, sci-fi nerds, you know that one of these themes that's constantly coming up is um, shields. You know, force fields that are coming around ships or people who have energy shields that they put up to kind of protect themselves. And uh, growing up in the church, I had this idea about faith and trusting God that it was like if you could somehow become a Jedi of the faith, there would be a way that you could somehow have life's problems and calamities bounce off of you uh, because you had somehow grown to this place and whether it was your obedience and spiritual disciplines or your prayer life or something that uh, you could kind of sort of generate a bit of a force field and have you know God and uh, have him cause the whole universe to conspire to your success in this kind of idea. Our text today is Romans chapter 8. As we've been working through the book of Romans chapter by chapter, we find that the Apostle Paul um, destroys any sort of image that we would have in our minds um, that the Spirit-led life, being children of God, full of the Spirit, uh, ends up looking like that, able to somehow have a force around us that repels uh, calamity and problems. In fact, what we find as we unpack this text this morning is that the Spirit is not an impersonal force that repels suffering. The Spirit is a person who comes into our suffering, who comes to us in suffering, who keeps us from being swallowed up by our suffering, and by his death-destroying power, he carries us through suffering. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read through to verse 27 this morning. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the sinful deeds of your body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is God's word. Now this text here, it unpacks some of the amazing benefits of adoption, what it means to be an adopted child of God's grace. 
And I want to just point really quickly to the use of Paul's language here right off the bat because he refers to us as children of God, which we're comfortable with, but then he refers to us as sons of God, which in 2019, many of us would not be comfortable with. We'd say, well, we should just change the text so it says children and not just say sons because that's offensive uh, to women. And so I want to show you why, just quickly, for those of you who may be new to the scriptures, why Paul is actually doing this in the text. Because, for example, here in Romans, women have to wrap their minds around being called sons. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 2 Corinthians, Revelation, and uh, also in the, the book of Ephesians, men have to wrap their minds around being brides, the bride of Christ. So when the Bible uses these metaphors, like us men being the bride of Christ and women thinking of themselves as sons, there are very specific things that the scriptures are getting us to think about our relationship with God. Right? If, if we were teaching in any of those other texts this morning, then we would be thinking about men. We would be thinking about ourselves as brides and how brides prepare themselves. And there's this, uh, a process of anticipation and expectancy and readiness. That's how we would be thinking. This morning, ladies, the way that you ought to think about this text being called sons is that in the ancient world, the inheritance was a masculine-only institution. So what Paul is doing is he's calling the men and the women, he's calling them all sons, because he's taking a masculine-only institution, and he's saying, in Jesus Christ, there is now this new institution, which knows no distinction between the value of the male and the female, because the inheritance is coming to all who are the children of God. And in fact, even if you were a male child, you still didn't get, it was the firstborn male child that got the majority of the inheritance in the ancient world. So what Paul does here is he's subversive to the culture, and he's intentionally assigning this you know, radical amount of dignity uh, to the women by bringing them in. That's why he uses the language um, the way that he does. He's showing that there's a divine inheritance um, here that's available. Now, adoption in the ancient world, it was this customary legal process, uh, and it happened often in the Roman culture. It happened often when there would be a wealthy adult that did not have any children. They would adopt a child or they would uh, another child or they would adopt uh, even one of their own servants and give them the inheritance this happened often and when you were adopted a number of things happened the moment the adoption became legal so Paul has all of these benefits of adoption in view when he writes this text so for example the moment you got adopted you immediately received a new name you immediately received an inheritance that wasn't yours before your debt was immediately eradicated because your adopted father wiped that debt out. And then finally, you were then obligated to a life of, of learning to honor and live into the values of your adopted family. So Paul has these ideas in view when he thinks about us being children of adoption. We've been given a new name. We now have, ben we now have benefits and inheritance that previously were not ours, but because of the grace of Jesus, they now are. Our debts have been eradicated by the scandalous forgiveness of Christ at the cross. And now we learn to live into a life of adopting the family values and essentially resembling the adopted family. So adoption happens in a moment. It's legal in a moment. But then that adopted child has a lifetime of learning to live out the implications of that adoption. So Paul has all these things in view. And to borrow from Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote a book called uh, Children of the Living God, he says this, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the meaning of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation, and it is the goal of redemption. And so this morning we're going to explore um, a few things uh, that this passage gives us about adoption. 
these benefits. We're going to look at them. The first one is intimacy that quiets the soul. Secondly, security that inspires confidence. And lastly, strength that meets you in weakness to guide you through pressure. So here's the first thing. Intimacy that quiets the soul. When you look at verse 13 and 14, it talks about being led by the Spirit. And as modern North Americans, when we think of being led by the Spirit, conversations we have often, conversations about being led by the Spirit have to do with decision-making. That's, we're a very pragmatic culture, and we think about it in terms of being led through decision-making. What Paul is giving us here, as you look very carefully at 13 and 14, the connection is he is saying, listen, if you are full of the Spirit, adopted child of God, and you are uh, being led by the Spirit, you're going to hate your sin and love your Savior. That's going to be something that is going to increasingly mark your life. You're going to turn from your sin. You're going to hate it. You're not going to live according to it. You're going to actually really intentionally um, desire to live to the glory of the one who saved you in grace. So to be led by the Spirit is not predominantly about decision-making. To be led by the Spirit is predominantly about the connection in verse 13, which is um, the desire to resemble the Father. That's why he houses this whole thing about being led by the Spirit in in the context of this adoption. Being led by the Spirit is first and foremost about imitation. There's no earning in our imitation. We preach this and talk about this all the time, week after week at Redeemer, that all of our obedience, all of our desire to live to God's glory is not earning us anything because Christ is sufficient, period, end of conversation, full stop. So now all of our imitation has a new form in the context of this adoption. So when we're adopted by grace, it's very much like a small child, a little toddler who puts their chubby little feet in their parents' shoes and then clumps around. And we all say, oh, that's so cute. And everybody has, every time a child does this, someone's got to snap a photo of it because we're just like, oh, this is the cutest thing ever. They put their feet and they just start to shuffle across the floor. And that is a picture of Christian obedience. That child is not earning anything through that imitation. It's just this cute demonstration of their love for their parents. And that is precisely what it is that we as children are desiring to do, imitate, imitate the one who saved us in grace. And so for those of you who may be here this morning, exploring Christian faith, considering Christian faith. This adoption is actually one of the core ways of understanding um, the Christian faith because what it illustrates is, see, adoption is received. Adoption is not something that you work for to achieve. And so in Christianity, all of the, all of the things in which we desire to do and, and live and the ethics and the values in which guide our lives For those of you who are considering Christian faith, what you need to um, grab a hold of this morning is actually we're we're in a receiving mode as God's children. And it is that adoptive, it is the blessings of our adoption that's actually propelling everything. There's no achieving being done. So Paul intentionally contrasts two spirits. You'll see it in the text in front of you. He's got the spirit of the slave and the spirit of the son. And he uses this striking language because he wants us to recognize if you're, if, you're a sla- if you're a religious slave, you're going to relate to God very different than if you're his child. You see, um, religious slaves relate to God on the basis of their work. The sons are going to relate to God on the basis of Christ's work. Right? The, the, the performance-based relationship always has the possibility that that relationship can be lost. So if you relate to God like a religious slave then there's always a chance that maybe God's going to say all bets are off. But in a loving, 
parent and child relationship, which is the picture of adoption, there is no possibility of the relationship being lost. So Paul is reframing the purpose for which we do everything. There is no possibility. You didn't perform to gain your salvation. You're not therefore performing to keep it. Your obedience is motivated by something completely different. If you love your children, can that relationship be strained? Yes. Can your children frustrate you? Yes. Do you sit your kids down one day and say, you know, it's been a tough couple of months and I'm going to have to let one of you guys go. You're fired. You, can't, you don't fire your children. You fire slaves. You fire, you know, in the ancient, I'm using the, it's an offensive term. I'm using Paul's terminology. In the ancient world, a slave was an employee, a servant, okay? You fire employees. You sit them down. You say, we did a performance review and this relationship is over. But that never happens with your children. Even if the relationship is incredibly strained, through tears, you still love your children. Even if, even if a relationship is uh, such that um, you're not even in, really in proximity anymore. As a loving parent, your heart is still toward the child. That is the picture of this adoption. That is the picture of the context that Paul has all of our Christian obedience living in. There's no risk of the loss of that relationship. If you relate to God like a religious slave, then you're sitting there and saying, I don't know about that preacher. I think I'm going to write you a letter this week and say, I disagree with you. There is a way you, you, you can lose it. I'm sorry. That's why Paul gives us this picture of adoption. Somebody who never trusted in Christ in the first place, that's a completely different conversation because they didn't lose anything. God didn't let them go and say, okay, you're, they just never were his child. They were just going through religious motions. But that's a completely different conversation than what the picture that Paul gives us here. And so, therefore, our way of relating to God is one of peace and intimacy that quiets the soul. It, the way we relate to God, it quiets our soul. So let's keep going and see um, how this plays out. Because when we're relating to God on the basis of adoption and abandonment is off of, off of the table, it allows us to do some things. Verse 15 gives us this striking image of crying out, Abba, Father. And in the English, it reads a little softer than it does in the Greek, because ours says, we, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. But in the Greek, the word for um, crying out is piercing shriek. It's a scream. It's, it's, a, it's an impassioned, you know, inarticulate cry. And, and uh, side note here, let's just smash cut to a history lesson. Why Paul would write it this way. Because the word, the whole New Testament was written in Greek. But the word Abba is not Greek, it's Hebrew. So Paul's really trying to get everybody's attention. Right? The reason why the New Testament is written in Greek is because if you pin it to world history, there's a guy named Alexander the Great, and he went from Mesopotamia to India at the tip of the sword, and he basically Hellenized the entire world. Hellenization is a word for meaning everybody's going to have to learn to speak this Koine Greek, this simple form of Greek. So the New Testament's written in Greek. And Paul, so he writes in Greek, because everybody's reading Greek, and then he's like, you know, I just got to make a point of how you can just scream and cry out to God with this deep uh, sense of tremendous intimacy. So in the middle of his Greek letter, he throws the Hebrew word in, Abba, because of course all these, uh, these folks, uh, they're, they're uh, in, in Rome, we've got many Jews there, and they speak Hebrew. And he writes this word down, Abba, and Abba is... is uh, it's not, it's not really a Hebrew word. Hebrew scholars will tell you it's like child babble. They'll tell you that, a Hebrew scholar will tell you, 
you know, we translate it, Abba means daddy, but it's a way of saying like a little toddler that's just screaming out and they go, I mean, may as well have written that. That's what Paul's doing. He's doing that because he wants us to see the tremendous intimacy that our adoption affords. This, this, the closest possible relationship to the creator of the cosmos. And when you look at verse 16, the very next verse says, we can cry out to him. We can just cry out like a little screaming child to God. Verse 16 says that what the Spirit does is he comes alongside us. And what is that coming alongside? What does he come alongside to do? Does he come alongside to give you a feeling, an experience, some warm fuzzies? Now, I'm not going to say that you can't have an actual experiential experience of the peace of God in a very tangible way. I'm not going to say that you can't. Many of you have. I have. God can do that. But that's not what this is. It can't only be that, because if you want to have a crisis of faith, then go through faith waiting for warm fuzzies, because the day that the warm fuzzies aren't there, you're like, oh my goodness, the Spirit, of God is go- the Spirit of God is gone. I'm feeling nothing. Look at what the Spirit does. It says the Spirit comes alongside to testify. And that word testify, in the Greek, it means to corroborate with evidence. So what the Spirit comes along, so here we are shrieking and screaming and crying out like little toddlers to God because our adoption enables us to do that. And the Spirit comes not to just give you a warm fuzzy that's sort of subjective. He testifies with corroborative evidence in your spirit that's not subjective, that's subjective. It's objective. What What is the Spirit testifying of? You look at what Jesus said. He said, the Spirit is going to come and he is going to testify of me and of what I've said. So as we're crying and shrieking out to God, we close the door and we flop on our beds and we're crying out, oh God, help me. What the Spirit of God does is he is whispering into your heart and your mind and your soul who you are on the basis of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection whose you belong to. He is, he is coming to you in those moments of turmoil, and he's saying, Exhibit A, you're God's child. Exhibit B, the resurrection is real. Exhibit C, not only are you God's child, but he, is going, he has come to give you grace that is perfect in your weakness. The Spirit comes to testify with corroborative evidence of who Jesus is, of what it is that he taught, to minister to your soul so he can quiet your soul. Quiet the shrieking, quiet the pain, quiet the hurt. This is what the Spirit comes to do so that we can come. He's coming. Exhibit A, remember the cross. Exhibit B, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers on the ground. Is your Heavenly Father taking care of the birds? Is he taking care of the flowers? Will he not much more carry you through this as you scream and shriek in your room? He will. You're his child. He loves you. The Spirit testifies and corroborates based on the goodness of Jesus and what he has done, who he is and what he has taught. When you think about a crying child, and many of us have had them, or some of you have them now, the crying child gets so worked up they get in a loop, right? That crying child, they're incapable of calming themselves. They're now in a loop now. They, they, they don't know what they need. They know who they need. And that's the picture of us, the crying children. And some of us as parents have tried to console those crying kids or a sick child or a child going through a, a, a tremendously, uh, you know, frustrating torment or we've sat at their bedside in the hospital and what we've said as parents is we've said, if I could take your sickness and your pain, I would take it. Haven't we said that as parents? If, I, if, oh, if it only could be me. I wish, you, I wish you would be fine and it could be me. Right? Parents cry out that way. What did the Heavenly Father do? That's precisely what he did. 
That's precisely what the cross is. I will come and I will take the ultimate. The ultimate pain, the ultimate abandonment, the ultimate judgment, the ultimate wrath, death. I will take it all. I will take all of the worst of where humanity is headed, our common enemy called death. I will take that darkness on myself. I will take it. He's the divine and heavenly Father who takes it upon himself. It's precisely what he's done. We are given through adoption intimacy that quiets the soul. Here's the second thing. Security that inspires confidence. Now, you look at verse 17, it says that we've got an inheritance coming. And that inheritance is so unimaginable. Verse 18 says it's not even worth comparing the suffering and the frustrations of today. Everything that we're going through in life today, no matter how stressful and dark and dismal, is not worth comparing to future glory. Now, I know that we can't really wrap our minds around this, which is why you're supposed to meditate on the scriptures. Because I'm going to say a few things here for the next couple minutes, and you're going to kind of run and grapple. But you've got to meditate. You've got to think on it. That's why the New Testament is constantly appealing for our meditation. We chew on the implications of this. Because our world is a paradox, of course. Joyful things and terrible things. Joy and pain. We talk about it all the time, right? Things that you can celebrate. You don't have to look very, very far before you find some loving and generous sacrificial thing in humanity. Say, oh, life is good. You look at a glorious sunset, the stars, the cosmos, the, just, the wonder, the waves crashing on the ocean. You go to the lake and the, the stillness of the water and the mist in the morning as you drink your coffee. There is no end to beautiful, glorious things to enjoy. And then in the same moment, you can find radical atrocities that just suck the joy out of your soul. This is the world we live in. It's a paradox. What Paul is saying is, what is coming, because all of us are tired of the paradox, what Paul is saying is what is coming is God in his great grace is going to eradicate that paradox. That every sorrowful thing will be eradicated and every joyful thing will be uh, restored. And so the world that is to come, of course, is going to completely eclipse the moment. This has an impact on the heart and the mind of the, ch- of the child of grace today. And the suffering that he's talking about here is not just a generic suffering. And you'll see in the text it talks about suffering. It's not just a generic suffering because to be human is to suffer. right? In the, wor- in the words of Wesley from The Princess Bride, the greatest film ever created, um, he said, life is pain, highness. And anyone who tells you anything different is selling you something. To be human is to have to endure pain. And what the apostle is, is getting at here is this suffering is not just the suffering of being human. It's a specific suffering of, in the context of this passage, turning from your sin, living to the glory of your Savior, and in imitating Jesus, there, part of the imitation of Jesus is sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. In this specifically meaning, when you determine to bend your knee to the Lordship of Christ, and you determine to realign your life, in imitation of Christ, or speak humbly and boldly about your faith in Christ, or live humbly and boldly according to your ethics and values that you are given by Christ, that can bring some suffering from those or the context that you may be, whether vocationally or relationally, from people who don't share either your faith in Christ or your values and ethics that have been formed by Christ, that can bring suffering. It always has and it always will for the people of God. And so what Paul is giving us here is he's saying, you know what, even though you go through that suffering, 
There is a security that inspires confidence. In the ancient world here, in the context of Rome, it's around 57 AD when Paul wrote this, and there's physical suffering that they're enduring. For us here in this time, in this location, southern Ontario, 2019, not physical suffering. Right? We gathered here to worship this morning. None of us are worried anything was going to happen on the way here. Some of you may even notice before the service started, there was a security guard walking down the hallway, you know, employed by the city because of this facility that we rent. I mean, this is a very different experience than for Christians around the world today who are under constant threat of suffering in different ways. I have a friend who was in China, and he was bringing some Bibles to some rural areas where they did not have Bibles in their language. And he went to some rural areas of some of the provinces in China, and he was at a small church, and uh, like about the size of this one. And he said uh, to them, have any of you been persecuted for your faith? And none of them raised their hands. So he asked the question again. He thought the interpreter got it wrong. None of them raised their hands. He said, whoa, that's, oh, I he said, you, none of you have been persecuted for faith. He said, well, has anybody in here been arrested? And the whole church put their hands up. They'd been arrested so many times and thrown in jail so many times for their faith that it didn't even, it didn't even register as persecution for them. They're like, oh, persecution. Well, I haven't been persecuted. I mean, I've been thrown in jail a couple times. But everybody has, right, preacher? Right? So what we're given here is a sense of security and inspires a radical sense of confidence for today, precisely because of we know what is coming. I mean, it just absolutely changes everything. When you look at verses 19 through 23, we see that the creation and our bodies are groaning for this life and this world to come, this world that we wish we had that seems to be evading us, the peace we wish we had in the world that seems to be evading us, the joy. And I know that many of us, uh, you know, say, well, you know, the, um, from a humanist point of view, we can make a difference. We can change the world. Okay, here's the problem, though. Here's, here's the limitation. For as many times as you can point to someone who just wakes up in the morning from, from a secular humanist point of view and does a beautiful thing. Um, someone else somewhere else is deciding to just do an atrocious thing. And if there is no God, then who gets to climb up into the throne and decide what is right and good and true? And it's why we have the problems we have in the world today. It's why in 2019 we're more educated, that we've got more access to information than we've ever had, but we just keep finding new and, in, and inventive ways of hurting each other and blowing each other up. The world is a paradox. And so what the apostle gives us is he says, you know, everything that we desire creation is groaning our bodies are groaning some of us as we get older you know my 40 year old warranty is up on my body and one of these days you guys are going to come to church and before i go to read this thing i'm going to i'm going to put those glasses on because i'm already at the point where certain things i'm like how do you what the? now you know two years ago i wasn't doing that and now i'm like woof, the body's groaning friday nights i hang out with the youth at the 223 saturday morning my body's like nope you're not young, son. More and more gray in that beard every day. The bodies are groaning. You know, uh, Dr. Uh, Tim Keller, he's an author and apologist, pastor emeritus at Redeemer New York City. He wrote a book, uh, commentary on Romans, and I'll lift a page uh, from it here. He says, you know, there's, there's nothing that isn't tainted by sin even uh, and pain, even if it's the pain of knowing that nothing good lasts forever. And so, if there is no God, this life is really as good as it gets. But you know, if there is a God, then this life in this world is as bad as it gets. 
If there is no God, then thinking about morality, or sorry, thinking about mortality is depressing. But for the children of God, the children of grace, it's not depressing to think about mortality. It's liberating because the deterioration and the inevitability of death is not the final word. Because of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, the restoration of all things is the final word. And that, that, that therefore liberates us today to understand that there is a total reversal that is coming. Christian faith is not just sitting back and saying, oh, well, one day God will fix everything, so I'll just sit back and do nothing and wait for that. It actually propels us to be very generous to give our lives away because this life is quite simply not all there is. We don't need 100% of our time and 100% of our finances and 100% of our energy and 100% of our everything because this life is quite simply not all there is. And if you believe that, and as that more deeply goes into your soul, it is going to provoke tremendous security that inspires confidence in you just as it did in the people of God throughout the millennia, throughout the generations. You know, this, this whole thing that Paul is giving here, it was a huge contrast to the way the Greco-Roman world thought about the afterlife. You know, they thought the afterlife was, well, the goal is to escape this material because it's messed up. And you just become spiritual and ethereal and just float through the cosmos like stardust, and that's the point. And here the Apostle Paul says, we actually know, in the end, we're not floating through the cosmos like stardust. We're not wearing diapers and playing harps. Um, that's a coloring book version of heaven. What the Apostle Paul is giving us here is do you like being a human? Good. Because God's, going, God's grace is going to perfect that. Jesus is the picture of humanity perfected, and our humanity one day will be perfected. Do you enjoy sunsets and landscapes and trips to the lake and the ocean crashing on the waves? And do you enjoy the ra- just the radical, mind-blowing you know, aspects of... of uh, of uh, nature do you just enjoy the beauty of nature good because god's grace is going to perfect it and this is what uh, this passage gives us in the words of c.s lewis every sad thing will become untrue and so that's why the apostle gives us the metaphor in verse 22 of childbirth that's why when he talks about your body and nature he goes what's a good metaphor for this childbirth the pain the travail the tears the agony it ends in joy. Right? I tread softly here because I haven't experienced it. This is like this room full of moms. They're like, watch it, preacher. Like, don't. There's a lot of things you can preach with authority. Childbirth is one you have to speak about in a, in a much different way. That's why the apostle gives this, this image, this joy that is coming. It is ending in joy. The, the pain doesn't win. Travail doesn't win. Tears doesn't win. Agony doesn't win. The end is not darkness and death going down into a grave. It is joy. It is rebirth. Joy that has no horizon. Peace that is not fragile. Peace that is endless. You know, at the moment, time slowly strips everything away. But for the children of grace, for the children of God, time is God's ally by which he is going to eventually restore absolutely everything. And the final thing is this. We're given this intimacy that quiets the soul. We're given security that inspires confidence. And we're giving strength that meets us in weakness to guide us through pressure. Verse 26, you go back to it. It says that the Spirit comes alongside us and he helps us in our weakness, right? He's, he's testifying. He's bringing corroborative evidence to our spirit. He's speaking into your heart and your mind the goodness of Jesus, the implications of his resurrection. And it says that he helps us. He helps us in our weakness. That word help, in the, again, in the English... 
It doesn't, seem, it doesn't have the same force as in Greek. I'll give you a picture here. Have you ever been moving, helping somebody move, and you're carrying something heavy, and maybe there's somebody on that moving crew, and they're very big, and they're very strong, and they come over, and they go, oh, let me help you. And they grab the other end of it, and you realize, you're like, am I just kind of touching this thing? I don't really feel like I'm helping anything. And you technically are, because you're still holding it, but you're kind of like, you're kind of walking up the stairs like, I don't know that I'm bearing any weight here. See, the help of the Spirit, the word in the Greek, it means to aggressively take hold of something. The Spirit comes to aggressively take hold of you when you're shrieking and crying and screaming and freaking out. He comes to aggressively take hold. He comes with full initiative to provide exactly what corresponds to the need. And it says that the Spirit groans. So notice what Paul gives here. We're groaning, he's groaning. We're crying out, he's crying out. He's not in pain. We're in pain, but he's crying out for a different reason. He's crying out because he's with us. Our God is with us in our pain. Our God is crying out and praying for us. It says, the word crying out, the spirit crying out in the Greek, stenagmos, it's, it's this groaning brought on by great pressure. The reason you and I are crying out to God in the first place is because of great pressure. And now the spirit comes alongside us to groan in great pressure. When we close the door and we flop in the chair and we put our heads in our hands and we groan, turn to God, church. He groans with you. And the Spirit prays on your behalf when you can't muster any words to pray. Your God, He comes to you in your darkest days. He comes to you in your weakest moments to meet you in your weakness, to guide you through the pressure. He will take hold of your heart and your mind with such force testifying of Christ and of the gospel. He bears the weight of whatever it is that you're carrying to carry you through it. These are the benefits by God's grace. These benefits are yours. You turn to him and call on him and find your rest in him. Intimacy that quiets your soul. The security that inspires confidence. Strength that meets you in weakness and guides you through pressure. Because the father planned your adoption, the Son paid for and secured your adoption, and the Spirit dwells in you to empower you to live out and enjoy the liberating freedom of your adoption. Let's pray.